0: Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell.
1: I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garde.
0: It's Thursday, May 27th, and this week we've got two special guests joining us.
1: Yeah, STAT reporter Drew Joseph joins us to discuss life after gene therapy. And then with Memorial Day approaching, we are hosting
2: former FDA commissioner and self-appointed meat czar Scott Gottlieb to talk about burgers and more serious topics, including the origins of the virus that started COVID-19.
0: We'll start with a roundup of our weeks in biotech.
1: But first, a word about StatPlus. Enjoying the Read Out Loud? Subscribe to StatPlus to get stories like these. StatPlus delivers daily market-moving coverage from across biotech, pharma, and the life sciences. Subscribe today to get access to breaking news, exclusives, and analysis from our award-winning team. Subscribe to StatPlus today at statnews.com slash subscribe. And as a special thanks for being a Read Out Loud listener, enjoy 10% off your first year by using the code POD.
0: So Adam, you had a lot of, you know, pure play biotech stories that you were sort of preparing for this week. Tell us about what you were working on.
1: Yeah, it was kind of this weird week where I was preparing and writing stories that haven't published yet and that they're all in the service of upcoming, pretty significant biotech news that we're all expecting. Obviously the most important one, the most consequential one is the, the FDA decision on aducanumab, you know, which is coming up June 7. So actually, Damien and I, we write, I think, Damien, we wrote two stories. We wrote one where the drug gets approved, and we wrote one story where the drug gets uh, rejected, because we don't know what's going to happen. So... That was fun, and then the, you know there's a bunch of other stuff though too. There's you know Vertex has data that that everyone's expecting on a drug for a a rare disease called AATD, uh, which is you know kind of sp- it's it's really important for Vertex because you know we all think about Vertex being this incredibly fast-growing company that dominates cystic fibrosis, but but that growth is actually slowing because they're running out of patients to treat. So they kind of need a new blockbuster franchise, and people are looking at this. AAT drug as potentially sort of the next big thing at vertex. Um, and then there's Sage Therapeutics, which you know has their depression drug that you know failed uh, a, a phase 3 study back in uh, to late 2019 and they've got a second go at depression and those results are imminent. So yeah, I've been kind of just writing stories getting ready for these big events to happen.
0: Man, it sounds like it could be a busy week leading out of Memorial Day and into the first week of June.
1: Well, hopefully, I think a lot of people are looking at those, uh, these events, and you know, if they're positive, as kind of being sort of big sentiment changers for hmm. biotech. You know, the obviously the stocks are down this year. It's not been a great year for biotech stock performance. So, hopefully, if these things are positive, then sentiment, you know, kind of turns to the upside.
0: Damien, what else have you been doing? Um, you know, I spent
2: some time this week considering the plight of the sell side analyst, who you know, a, a class of people that we don't we don't often spend that much time talking about. But you know, in in the world of Wall Street, there is the the buy side of people who are buying stocks, and there's the sell side, which are the the banks that are selling them to them. In in the sort of the crassest possible terms, and those banks employ analysts who basically send out research uh, to investors as a sort of. I mean, I don't want to be Dismissive, but it's sort of like a lost leader from the bank's perspective. I think about them sometimes because they have what I think is a really difficult job. Because the clients, what they really want is one-on-one time with the executives of the companies. And what the companies really want is positive coverage from these analysts. And so sometimes the analyst's job, which is ostensibly to you know really dig deep on these companies and when something is bad, to say that it's bad in however many couch terms that can make it to where those companies will want to withhold that access if the analyst isn't providing, uh, you know, the kind of analysis that they want. And likewise, it can alienate clients if the analyst just seems like they're constantly rubber stamping everything is good. Anyway, the reason I was thinking about that this week is because a lot of that research, you know, there's been you know studies done that something like 5% of it ever gets read. The rest of it is just lost in the inboxes of
1: investors. Hey, Damien. Uh, yes. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I want to let you know that I have 58,000 unread sell side note emails in my inbox. (laughs) I mean, that's the thing. So you can imagine if you were a fund
2: manager at whatever capital that, you know, that that's probably what you're facing as well, if not, maybe even more, depending on how many sectors you're looking at. And so it can be very difficult for these analysts to stand out, to to crack that 5% threshold. And anyway, the reason that came to mind this week is that I think we talked about this before on this podcast. There's a company called Werewolf Therapeutics, which went public with the symbol howl, which is very cute. And I think we all had a laugh. And anyway, the whatever kind of waiting period um, since the IPO has elapsed, and thus the cell-side researchers initiated their coverage, and that led to what seemed like a sort of linguistic bake-off between these analysts who have this task of trying to stand out in the inboxes, and we saw, um, I think, a lot of creativity in that, and I wanted to highlight what I thought, of the ones I saw, and Adam, I know you tweet about this as well, um, the best, which was from SVB Leerings, Dana Graybosch, whose uh, subject line, uh, initiating coverage on it, was cancer beware, parentheses, wolf colon, next-gen therapies hiding in plain sight, parentheses, okine. <laughs> and that is CYT, um, as I assume you would imagine. So clever. Um, I... Yeah, I wanted to, uh, I wanted to one, uh, let all the sell-side analysts know that I see you, you are valid, and I <laughs> wanted to let uh, Dana Greybush know in particular that I think that you uh, went above and beyond this week. And so, you know, fair play to all of the sell-side analysts.
1: Meg, I want to know what you were doing this week, but first I want also your opinion on sell-side analysts using puns in headlines or research notes. How, how do you feel about that?
0: I love it. Um, I, in fact, often will tweet out my favorite one of the day. Every time I hear the word, the name werewolf therapeutics, I think of um, that song from 30 Rock uh, werewolf bar mitzvah do you guys remember mm. that
3: werewolf bar mitzvah spooky scary boys becoming men men becoming wolf
0: werewolf. Uh, um, <laughs> anyway that's literally what always plays in my head but
2: i'm hoping meg the fact that you work for nbc means that they
1: will not sue us for using yeah.
2: that interpolation of their <laughs> copyrighted material <laughs>
1: yeah my, my take on werewolf was not this is not necessarily uh original but I, I, they really should be based in london hmm <laughs> Is that going over over, over people's heads?
0: <laughs> I feel like it's the literary no, it's, reference that I it,
1: it, it's that Warren Zevon. No, so it's a, it's a
0: Warren, Warren Zevon. Oh. Yeah. Well, yep, way over <laughs> my head. Anyway, what I have to contribute to this podcast this week um is a story about a ticker as well. Um I actually heard back from Art Levinson, the legendary former CEO of Genentech, um, after I'd reached out to him um, about last week's conversation that we had about Ginkgo uh, Bioworks taking over the DNA symbol, which of course was Genentech's. Um, I asked him you know, how he felt about it. And um, he wrote me back this week and he said, "Um, my first reaction was surprise and a bit of disappointment, but I quickly got over it. He said, with the events over the past 15 months and perhaps some wisdom that comes with age, it wasn't hard to move on. Um, And then, you know, I I noted that Adam felt pretty indignant about it. And um, (laughs) he wrote back, uh, to be clear, I'm not judging anyone who might feel strongly about it. I get it. So Adam, Art Levinson sees you. But I also feel like I need to say, he did not comment at all. He said specifically he was not commenting on the particular company that assumed the symbol. It was just the idea of the symbol right. being used by anyone. It's a
1: very, it's a very measured uh, response from Art Levinson, which I, which I expect. But, but first of all, the fact that you got Art Levinson to respond to your email is pretty spectacular. So, you know, kudos to you for getting him to respond. He's been kind of elusive since you know in in, in recent years.
0: Totally, but. Maybe he just, how strongly he feels about the DNA ticker. I honestly expect him to be like, why are you emailing about this? This is stupid. Like, but he <laughs> wrote me back and he was like, yeah, I was kind of sad, but then I got over it. <laughs>
2: Two years ago, treatment of the rare disease spinal muscular atrophy forever changed with the approval of Zolgensma, a one-time gene therapy from Novartis with life-saving potential. The treatment's promise led to some whispers of the word cure, but the reality is much more complicated.
0: Stats' Andrew Joseph spoke to the parents of kids who received Zolgensma for a story this week, and he joins us to talk about how they're doing. Drew, welcome back to the podcast.
3: Thanks for having me. Hey, Drew, your story
1: begins with the Brown family uh, in West Boylston, uh, Massachusetts. Tell us about them.
3: Yeah, so um, the Browns have three kids. Their third kid, Kate, um, was diagnosed with um, the most severe and most common form of SMA when she was a baby. It was a disease they had never heard of before. um, And that was kind of around the time that care for SMA was changing. Up until about 2016, Kids like Kate would have died generally by the time they were about two, um, but by the time Kate was born, there was already one therapy um, on the market, Biogen Spinraza, and she was started on that, and then when she was about 22 months old, this gene therapy, Zolgensma, was approved, and that's um, that's only approved for kids under two, so her family kind of had to sprint to get it before she turned two, but they were able to to get it for her, so she has sort of been the beneficiary of, of two of the, of the now three um, therapies that are approved for SMA. And that, that's all happened in the past four and a half years.
1: You know, Drew, one thing that I really liked about your story was, you know, we do throw around the word cure or we think about the word cure when we think about the, when we talk about gene therapies. Um, and like you mentioned, you know, without these treatments, you know, a child who has the most severe form of SMA, you know, it's a death sentence. You know, they would be dead by the time they're, you know, one or two years old. Um, but again, that doesn't mean that they're free of health problems. And I thought that was really the best thing about your story was like you kind of showing how, you know, these could still deal with a lot of issues, right?
3: Yeah, and I mean, you know, this is only the second gene therapy on the on the market, so I don't want to make a blanket statement and say that you know gene therapies won't ever be cures. You know, there's there's some nuances there for um, different diseases. Um, with SMA though, in particular, once the disease process starts you lose these these cells called motor neurons and you can't get those back even with treatment. I think what's clear with SMA, though, is there's a time factor. The earlier these kids can be treated, the better off they'll be because there's less disease progression. They still have more of their motor neurons. But, um, you know, I mean, with any treatment, there are going to be a wide range of outcomes. And, and I just think that was sort of the point of the story. Like, it's amazing that these kids are alive. And in many cases, they are able to do things that were once, like, completely unimaginable. And that includes just, like, even, like, sitting up or, like, you know, parents talked about just like the fact that their kids could pull their hair, like that would have never happened before this. But, you know, a lot of these kids, you know, some can walk, some maybe even appear typical, but a lot of these kids still have like pretty severe um, therapeutic needs, are on different drugs, use cough machines, use, you know, suction machines, use feeding tubes. So it's a little bit more complicated than these great therapies have been approved and they're taking care of of all the issues.
2: So sort of on that same point, you know, it's The parents you spoke to seem to kind of strike a balance between their incredible gratitude at or for these therapies, without which, you know, as Adam mentioned, this would be a death sentence, but also kind of weaving the line of um, I think one of them mentioned that, you know, she had seen um, other parents in like a Facebook group or something talking about getting access to gene therapy as being like the end of a story. But her advice to them was, in fact, you are embarking upon the beginning of a story.
3: Yeah, exactly. Um, parents, I think, because as, when these kids are born and they get this, like, really horrible diagnosis, and this is often a disease that most parents haven't heard of in this case, unless they've already had a child born with it. Um, there is just such a focus on, like, okay, what can we, what can we do immediately? And I think Solgensma, like, as a gene therapy, it's, you know, it's one time and it's sort of framed as this thing that fixes the genetic error at the, at the root of the disease that causes this disease. You know, I spoke to um, clinicians, and they they were kind of like, yeah, we have to communicate to parents that, like, yeah, this is a one-time infusion, but, like, we have to do a lot of follow-up. You know, some kids have reactions to the therapy. And even with the the gene therapy, like, these kids will probably need physical therapy for a long time. Like, there's a lot more that goes into it. You know, even I talked to... Dave Lennon, who is a an executive at Novartis, which makes Solgensma, and he he hates the word or the phrase "one and done um which sort of implies. Uh, that you know, you get your infusion, then you're you know you're totally healthy, and you don't have to worry about anything else. You know, and of course that raises questions about sort of the broader story of what gene therapies can and can't do, and how they're marketed. But, um, yeah, it's it's it was interesting to see that kind of patients and clinicians, and even the company behind it, are kind of saying, no, it's a bit, it's more complicated than that.
0: Well, it's funny. Um, I- that conversation you had with David Lennon in the story really struck me because I, I, of course, am now Googling to see if David Lennon ever used the words one and done or if the company ever kind of emphasized that as they were introducing the price of this therapy, which you point out is more than $2 million. And so the whole argument is you only have to have it one time and that you can make this case that it's replacing all of the other you know, expensive ways of um, treating these patients. Um, how does that um, sort of change the way society and and payers might think about um, reimbursing for this drug which already can be a struggle
3: right yeah I think I think it sort of depends on on how you frame you know quote unquote value um, obviously there is a value of this therapy in that um, Kids are staying alive and are able to do things that uh, you know have never been possible before. Um, and what Novartis would say is like we just sort of need to rethink di- rethink what value is. You know, they say it's sure it's a two million dollar therapy, but that's actually less than the cost of. Um, Spinraza if you have to get Spinraza every four months for years and years this they kind of say like this is like as if you were getting years of benefits just but in one price uh, at a one time therapy but to some critics of the price their argument is that if something is that expensive and like is sort of framed as this one time thing, it should prevent future spending on whatever it's whether it's like a wheelchair or physical therapy or, you know, some families are trying multiple drugs. They kind of point to what's happening in SMA and saying maybe the hype around gene therapy is sort of outpacing the the value people are really getting from it.
0: Drew, you mentioned that this isn't necessarily um, indicative of all gene therapies to come, but um, did folks you talk to think this does provide lessons for how we can think about the gene therapies that might come on the market for hemophilia and beta thalassemia? Um, should we, as as journalists writing about this and talking with folks about this, be be phrasing um, how we talk about it differently, knowing the experience with SMA?
3: Yeah, I think kind of the answer is yes and no. Like each each gene therapy will have their, you know, specific outcomes and their nuances. Um, but I think a lot of companies and a lot of patient groups are looking to the experience with SMA. Um, you know, companies are trying to figure out reimbursement policies because these drugs are so expensive. So they're trying to come up with like a... You know, an installment plan almost for insurers to pay for it over years or like maybe if you don't get good results, you don't pay as much. So it's leading to a lot of, um, I guess, trying to come up with some innovative uh, payment plans. Um, I think patient groups are starting to recognize um you know, some of the outcomes for at least some patients may be more limited than what they might have expected. Um, and they're trying to sort of communicate that to families that this is actually a really complicated process. Um, and even, you know, for clinicians, I talked to a uh, uh, a pediatric neurologist at Children's Hospital Colorado, and she was saying with their experience from Zulgensma, they've established a quote-unquote gene team in sort of anticipation that they're going to be doing a lot more gene therapies in the future. And that just sort of ropes in all the specialists they might need, all the potential side effects they might um, see, you know, after uh, a gene therapy is delivered. And so, yeah, everyone is kind of using this as a, um, at least a, a, a partial point of instruction for what could come with other gene therapies going forward.
2: Drew, thanks for joining us.
3: Thanks so much for having me.
2: Before we get to Scott Gottlieb, I wanted to put in a plug for STAT's newest show, The First Opinion Podcast. Each week, host Pat Scarrett talks to expert guests about the issues and ideas that are shaping health and medicine. Recent guests include a neurologist discussing the ripple effect of Alzheimer's disease, author Walter Isaacson on his new CRISPR book, and Chelsea Clinton on the public health consequences of fracking. You can find the First Opinion podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: So it's Memorial Day weekend, which means summer is finally here. And who better to celebrate then with Scott Gottlieb, America's most famous incinerator of grilled meats. Scott, welcome back to the podcast. And please tell us, what does a burger cooked to the volcanic temperature of 160 degrees actually taste like? Safe. Um, it tastes safe.
4: You know, the issue with your medium rare rare burgers, Adam, is that, as you know, with with meat, the key is to grill, grill the outside of the meat because you can get fecal material on the outside of the meat. But when you grind chopped meat, you, you can grind the components that are on the exterior of the meat into the interior of the chopped meat. And so you want to make sure the, uh, that chopped meat, i.e. a hamburger, is properly cooked right through to the center. So it's not like your steak. right? Yeah, your steak could be, could be rare because you're cooking the outside of the steak, so the inside Although with needle tenderization and the things that we do to to chop meat, you can also get um, translocation of the bacteria into the center of the steak. So it's still important to cook it to a proper temperature, but you have more risk with chop meat when you're grinding it
1: up. So taste safe is not exactly the most appetizing marketing slogan.
0: I mean, neither is the fact that there could be poop in the meat. I mean, that's just what Dr. Gottlieb said.
1: Damien's Damien's a vegetarian, so he should probably chime in here. Damian. Well, what, what, I was going to say for the thoughts? benefit
2: of listeners who were not previously plugged into to this long-running and strange uh, meat spat between the two of you and who were perhaps jarred by the mention of fecal material um, in connection with food, I think, you know, for me on the outside looking in, if I recall correctly, and you, you both can correct me if I'm wrong, there was an initial tweet, perhaps from you, Scott, about, you know, the proper temperature of grilling meat, and it led to these sort of charcoal briquette-looking clumps. (laughs) And then Adam, who, as I understand it, prefers to just take bites of living cattle, was offended by that. And then that set in motion, really the undercurrent, I think, of your time at the FDA, which was your... For the record,
1: I like like a medium-rare burger.
4: Adam's judging my meat by its cover. It's a little unfair. He's judging my meat by its cover because he's looking at the outside and he's assuming that it's not properly cooked on the inside and there's not still some moisture to it. But just because I sort of flame the outside of the burgers you know it's not completely uh charred to a to a crisp
1: (laughs) well scott can we expect some uh some food safety tweets this weekend from you
4: there will be so i'm going to talk about you know the proper temperature to cook uh, uh ground meat to which is 160 degrees fahrenheit poultry 165 degrees um fresh meat and chops roast should be about 145 degrees just use the temperature Thermometer to, uh, to check to check the temperature that you're cooking it to. So I'm going to try to put out some safe uh, safe grilling techniques.
1: I, I'll, I'll read the tweet and then I'll ignore it because <laughs> yeah, America. You, I, <laughs> I know you will.
0: So we have Dr. Gottlieb here to talk about more things than grilling, but we do want to call this segment Grilling with Dr. G. And now we want to do some grilling of Dr. G uh, with some questions about what's going on in the world. And um, Scott, we'll start, and, and I'm sorry if this is awkward, but you did tweet it to your like 500,000 followers. So um, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about this. You had a little bit of a, a Twitter encounter with Brett Girard, Girard uh, this week. Tell us about that.
4: Well, I was just commenting on the fact, so Janet Woodcock had tweeted out um, the agency's latest uh, enforcement action around Kratom, and I uh, commented on the fact that the FDA had tried to schedule Kratom, um, which is a substance that everyone agrees is a weekly acting opioid. Uh, and, you know, I believe FDA believe that is contributing to the opioid addiction crisis. But the criteria for for scheduling a substance um isn't necessarily demonstrating that fact. It's it's based on the science of what the substance itself is doing. And if it's an addictive substance, it meets the criteria for being scheduled. So FDA and NIH and DEA had worked together for years um, and we were about to schedule it. And Gerard, he uh, sort of admitted it on t- to Twitter. He, he spoke to this. He intervened unilaterally to... Um, to block the scheduling of the product. When I had discussions with him about it at the time, he had said that, well, he had spent a lot of time over the weekend reading the literature around Kratom and it caused him to change his mind about it. Ultimately, the process was allowed to go forward. Um, This ended up getting elevated in the administration. Uh, There was a discussion about it at the White House. We were allowed to go forward, but then the government shutdown happened and the whole process just lost momentum. So um, Kratom remains unscheduled. I think that the balance of the, the information that we had shows that a lot of people are using Kratom to help continue addi- addiction. So they're using Kratom in between their ability to get access to other opioids, or they're using Kratom becoming addicted to Kratom, which is a weekly acting opioid. that acts a lot like buprenorphine actually and then going on to use other opioid products so i i do believe that is contributing to the opioid crisis in the country and should be addressed
1: i don't know if it's twitter or you know obviously everything on twitter it gets escalated so is there bad blood between you and brett over this issue because it it seemed like it seemed like the tweets got a little personal between the two of you
4: well i don't know that if you look back at the sequence um i wouldn't interpret it that way i mean i i i had put up what i thought was a very sort of bottom line policy statement. With referencing the FDA action, um, and in his reply, I think is what you're what you're referring to. Yeah, exactly. Um, I don't know. I think that that's reflective of just general temperament. Um, I don't know that that surprised me, frankly.
2: Well, speaking of the FDA, I mean that's all kind of looking back at at things that took place under the last administration. But now we are almost in June, and there is no nominee to be a permanent commissioner of that agency and I don't know I'm just curious what do you we've heard a lot of commentary from around we've heard criticism of the administration for not prioritizing this to a greater degree given the fact that we're in a pandemic and I know there are counter arguments to that as well what do you think is going on at this point with with sort of that decision
4: I don't have a lot of insight into it if I had to guess it's that they have a very good acting commissioner who they're happy with and in no rush to uh, make a change Uh, I I don't think that it's going to be hard to find someone who's more competent than Janet Woodcock in filling that role. Uh, And that could be more effective in terms of getting things done right now in the setting of a crisis. And so why why would you change that out? If you want to move quickly, you want to advance policy quickly, you have the perfect commissioner to do that. I think there's still people, based on what I've heard, there's still a lot of people who'd like to see Janet permanently nominated for the role. And I think to the extent that she stays in the position and is able to put wins on the board, do some things around the issues that folks on Capitol Hill care about, particularly with respect to the opioid crisis. I think that's become um, the flashpoint. I think Janet's going to be able to advance policies that meaningfully address that. And to the extent that she's able to do that, hopefully that can win over some converts on Capitol Hill as well. And maybe the dynamic, the political dynamic for her being formally nominated into that role changes.
2: So separate from the long running dispute between you and Adam about the proper temperature for meat, another subplot of the entire pandemic has been the interest in and debate over the origins of the virus that causes COVID-19. And I think that's that's really heated up in recent weeks with a lot of attention on, you know, a theory that it could have leaked from a lab rather than, uh, I think, the more common explanation that it had jumped from an animal. I feel like thinking about your tweets, you've always been open to um, and considerate of the possibility of this lab leak theory and maybe kind of stirring the pot a bit as as that interest has escalated. I'm curious... You know, what do you think about the state of that debate? And then what kind of information do you feel like we need to see to have a definitive grasp on the answer to that question?
4: Yeah, I'm not sure we're ever going to have a definitive grasp on the answer to that question. Um, Unless we find the intermediate host where the virus uh, originated from, the animal host, which we haven't found after an exhaustive search, or unless we have something that definitively demonstrates that this came out of the lab, a whistleblower, um, access to information that somehow wasn't, um, you know, that, that was made available that hadn't been made available previously. From my standpoint, this matters because um, a lot of the discussion around how to prevent the next pandemic has focused on zoonotic sources and trying to improve um, handling of foods and wet markets and trying to look at all the risk associated with humans encroaching on natural habitats. None of the discussion has been around how do we get better security and better practices around BSL-3 and BSL-4 labs. BSL-4 labs are springing up all over the world. We don't really have good international governance of those labs. We don't have good governance of their practices. We don't have good governance of what kind of research is going on in those facilities. And if you think that there's a possibility this came out of a lab, um, I think part of the policy response ought to be getting better governance around high-risk research and high-risk laboratories, and that discussion is not happening. And I think that's where the risk is—that we don't we don't engage the, that side of the ledger in a meaningful way. And as far as you know, the lab leak theory—I think there's there's two narratives here, and one is interfering with the other. One narrative is that there's a direct connection between NIH and and U.S. researchers, and this. This strain, which was engineered deliberately by Chinese researchers, not necessarily to be a bioweapon, but engineered deliberately. I think that narrative is untrue. And I think that 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 political narrative is conflicting with a more plausible narrative, which is that this was a strain that was um, found in, in nature, that was brought to the lab for further evaluation. And in the course of evaluating it, and maybe doing research on how to develop countermeasures against it that were well-intentioned, it became more humanized, um, more human adapted, and accidentally was was walked out of the lab, probably by people infecting themselves. I think that there's some plausibility to the second scenario. And unfortunately, the political narrative that's being pushed around the first scenario is, I think, obscuring the possibility of the second scenario and causing people who might be a little bit more open-minded to it to you know, sort of push back from the table.
0: So you know, as all of this investigation is going on into the origins of the virus, we're of course entering a summer in the United States that many people here in this country are incredibly excited about. Um, more than fifty percent of adults are vaccinated. Case numbers are now experiencing exponential decay, which is just the most wonderful term I had never heard before the pandemic that I'm now understanding. What is your expectation for what the pandemic looks like, um, both here uh, and globally, in the months ahead?
4: Well, very worried about what's going on globally, but I do think that in the U.S. we're entering sort of a post-pandemic period and it's not going to be a binary um, point in time. I mean, we're going to evolve out of a, the pandemic period into a more seasonal type of picture with with the coronavirus, barring something really unexpected happening with a new variant that changes the characteristics in such a profound way that it, we're effectively dealing with a new virus. The bigger risk or or an equal risk for the winter and even for the summer, for that matter, is other viruses. We haven't been socialized to the normal epidemiology of Coxsackie virus and enterovirus. Um, an echo virus in the summertime you see rising levels of respiratory syncytial virus right now next winter could be a pretty hard flu season because we we missed a whole year of flu we haven't put immunity into the population if we have a mismatch between the flu strain that circulates next year and the and the vaccine we use it could be a pretty hard flu season now mitigating against that is you know, you can argue, well, maybe the epidemiology of disease has changed a little bit because we've all become a little bit of germaphobes in this country. So maybe all the Purelling that we're going to continue to do and the occasional mask wearing and just being more conscious of the spread of respiratory pathogens generally and even even pathogens that spread fecal-oral, maybe all of those activities are going to help mitigate the spread of some of these things that might otherwise take off because we haven't seen them in a while. So it's hard to know which way that cuts. You can kind of lay out a theory either way, but I know there's some epidemiologists who are worried about flu next winter, that we have a a really bad flu season, and on top of that, we still have some continued spread of coronavirus. And that's the scenario I think people worry about.
1: Scott? Thanks a lot for joining us, and have a great Memorial Day weekend. What's uh, what's on the menu for the weekend?
4: Well, I'm gonna cook your favorite um, burgers, Adam. Um, <laughs> awesome. Well done. I'll send you I'll send you a nice picture of them with a thermometer in them.
1: Enjoy those, and and thanks again for joining us. Thanks a lot. And that does it for another episode of the Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode.
0: Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose.
1: Our
2: executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel.
0: And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and your preferred burger temperature, or if you don't eat burgers at all. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com.
1: And if you like what we do, leave a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week. How to grill a hamburger. Place hamburger on grill. Count to 10. Flip hamburger. Count to 10. Remove hamburger.
2: Eat.